Uh, I'm pretty excited, and at the same time, I'm a little daunted. Uh, over the next three Sundays, we're going to explore a uniquely Christian concept called the Trinity. Uh, a friend of mine asked me what I was preaching this week, and my answer was God. <laughs> God. And he says, you want to you expand on that? I'm like, not really, no. Uh, I didn't want to get into Trinitarian theology in a Starbucks lineup, try to figure out you know, how I could explain that in, in like 60 seconds or less. But at the very heart of Christian spirituality, there is this notion called the Trinity. It, it's, it's so central that, that one of the greatest theologians of the last century, Karl Barth, put it this way. He said, Trinity is the Christian name for God. And he wasn't talking about a, a character in the Matrix, but he's talking about the very essence of God. God is a Trinity of, of three in one, co-equal and yet distinct persons called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, the concept of the Trinity isn't simple, <laughs> and there's no way that we can make it simple, I don't think. But as C.S. Lewis once said, he said, everyone has warned me. He said, the ordinary reader does not want theology. Give him plain, practical religion. He says, I have rejected their advice. I do not think the ordinary reader is such a fool. Theology means the science of God, and I think anyone who wants to think about God at all would like to have the clearest and most accurate ideas about him which are available. The, the Trinity is not simple. There is this complexity and this mystery and this wonder, which I think is actually a good thing. And, and so on the next couple of Sundays, and, and this is far too brief a series for this, we'll come back again and again. We need to to. to become Trinitarian in our thinking as a church. And so today and the next two Sundays, we'll think about and pray about God as Trinity. Today's an introduction. We'll ask questions of understanding the Trinity. What does it mean? Why do we believe it? And we'll ask, I think, a, a, a relevant question about why this matters to us at all. What, what difference does the doctrine of a triune God make in my everyday life? Um, Philosopher in the 19th century, Immanuel Kant, thought it made no difference at all. He, he said it, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea of the Trinity, has no practical relevance at all. Whether we are to worship three or ten persons in the divinity makes no difference in how we live our life. Is that true? I'm going to argue that Kant is, is wrong, that understanding and experiencing the Trinity has enormous implications for our everyday lives. Let me begin with a warning, though. The Trinity is not just a, a concept. We're, we're discussing a, a real person who is present here among us. I feel, I feel awkward standing here talking about God when God is here present among us and ready to meet us this morning. It's sometimes, I think, easy for us to approach God like we would uh, approach a frog ready for dissection in biology class. You know, lay them out on the table and, and, and cut, them, cut them open and, and try and explain them with detached objectivity. And, and people have done that with God. But God isn't like that. God is alive. And, and he's kind of wild. In fact, God is the most live and, and wild being that exists. And so uh, I want to say this morning that God wants to pour out his love into your heart in my heart this morning. And so I don't want you to just think about God. I want you to continue to enter into this relationship with the living God. 
Now let's uh, begin this discussion uh, about this difficult topic about the Trinity, not with intellectual speculation about how God is three and yet one, but rather let's look at human experience. Um, because really the only reason we know anything about the God of, of heaven and earth is because this God has revealed himself to human beings just like us. Back in Genesis, we're told that Abraham had an experience of, of God calling him to, to leave his homeland, to leave his home and go to a, a foreign land. And this God became known to them as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And, and, and he, they were called this because these individuals experienced this God through his messages, through, through his blessings, and through his presence very evident in their everyday lives. Now, I, I don't know... I know that some of you don't actually really like the Old Testament. Um, I know some people who, who just love that last part of the Bible. Um, and I think that's kind of too bad because I think there's, the, the Old Testament is rich, rich books. And it's true there are parts that are difficult to read. But it's interesting to me that, that the Old Testament scriptures are not a collection of just philosophical ideas of God, like the Greeks tended to do, like think Plato or Aristotle, for an example. They, they would describe God as the prime mover and things like that. Um, instead, the Old Testament is a collection of stories, stories of how God has revealed himself in our world. The greatest story by far was the Exodus, where, where hundreds of thousands of Israelites experienced firsthand the miracle of God delivering them from slavery in Egypt and into their promised land. And forever after, when they referred to God in Scripture, God was not just an idea. God was the one who delivered them from Egypt. Now, fast forward to the first century where a man walked the dusty roads of Galilee saying things like, I and the Father are one. And what did the Jews do as a result? They picked up stones to kill him, to stone him. They said things like, we are stoning you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. But when Jesus spoke, he spoke with, with the authority of God. People are amazed by his authority. He claimed God's power and prerogative and right to forgive sins. He judged as God judges. And, and, and people began to realize that when they looked into the face of Jesus, they were looking into the face of the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They took him seriously when he said, I and the Father are one. Now, you see, never Jesus, Jesus never claimed that he and the Father were identical, that they were the same. On the contrary, we see Jesus regularly speaking to God, praying to God, speaking about God as someone that was other than himself. <clears throat> and, and on the cross, he, he says to God, into your hands I commend my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, the, the more convinced that the early church became that Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh, God incarnate, the more pressure grew from them to somehow understand this relationship, to somehow put this into words, to clarify, what does this mean? You have to understand how radical this was for, for Jewish believers. When, when Jesus arrived in the first century, every single Jew would have been a diehard monotheist, I mean, every Jew would have memorized and recited every single day the, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. The Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, might, and strength. And, and so they were experiencing this, this massive paradigm shift. And, 
And early Christian think- thinkers need to, to ma- needed to make sense of their own kind of undeniable experience that this Jesus of Nazareth was God in the flesh. And so they grappled with this, and, and many answers were, were given. A, an, an influential thinker named Marcion in around 140 AD suggested that there were actually two gods. There was the creator God of the Old Testament, and then there was the saving, redeeming God of, of the New Testament, but there were two gods. And this seemed to make sense of things, solved the problem, but ignored the biblical evidence, like Deuteronomy 6, which says the Lord is one. <laughs> The situation actually got more complicated because uh, these early Christians were also experiencing God in another way. On the day of Pentecost, just as Jesus had promised, the Spirit of God flowed into them in a truly miraculous way. And from that day forward, Christians knew that God was not just distant outside, out there, far off away, but God was also inside of them. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 8, he says, You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And he he goes on to say, if if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. And he'd say later, he'd say, you know, you are a temple, you the church, but you also as individuals are a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. So the Holy Spirit is also involved in human beings' experience of God without at the same time being identical to either the Father or Jesus. We're talking about three distinct persons. And many have asked, like, how do we get this whole idea, Trinity, when we never find the word Trinity in the Bible? Uh, This is clearly answered by a phrase from a well-known and highly regarded Oxford theologian, Alistair McGrath. He says that the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't invented, it was uncovered. The doctrine of the Trinity is not some arbitrary and outdated dictate handed down by some confused council. It is the inevitable result of wrestling with the richness and complexity of the Christian experience of God. God has always been three. Those early Christians were, were like early explorers who were kind of walking through the valleys and among the mountains, and they were just pointing out the geography that had already been there. And, and kind of giving us a map so that we might find it ourselves. But, but understanding uh, the Trinity wasn't just from their own experience, what they're experiencing as Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and while we won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, we have to understand that this idea of three in one, a three in one God is strewn throughout the, the New Testament. Everywhere, if you look on the screen, I've listed some of the passage, passages that describe the Trinity. And, and I've actually, for some of you who just want to get into the Word today or this week. Uh, I've, I've got a few of, the, of these uh, listed on the back in a, in a piece of paper, so you can actually do some homework and read up on these scriptures. They're, they're great scripture. But are you with me so far? This is a, I told you this is a big topic this morning, and we're talking about God here. And, and we'd be wise to kind of heed and remember St. Augustine, who pointed out in the, the fourth century when he said, if you can comprehend it, it's not God. And clearly, with, with the Trinity, we're standing before mystery. <laughs> we're not going to be able to, this is going to be frust. Some of you, you, you're, I mean, some of you are very, I'm not this way. Some of you are very systematic in your lives. I mean, I know Scott eats cereal in order. 
and he, uh, he, buy, he don't, doesn't want to ever get tired of any one cereal, so he actually, you know, buys the, the next box, and he, he keeps on replacing them so that they're never getting, is that right, you still do that? Week? Julie is adaptable. She's more like the rest of us, I think. And Scott is a, in and of himself, a unique creature in God's creation. I'm sure of that. But it's a mystery. God is a mystery, and we stand before this mystery, a mystery, I think, that preserves God's majesty and, and holiness against those who would box God in and try to to reduce God down to a place where we can understand Him or, or comprehend Him. And it's, it's not that we don't, can't understand Him entirely, but we're not meant to fully understand God. He is God, after all. Uh, one theologian named Leonardo Boff put it this way. He said, seeing mystery enables us to understand how it provokes reverence. The only possible attitude to what is supreme and final in our lives he says, it is not a mystery that leaves us dumb and terrified, but one that leaves us happy, singing and giving thanks. Mystery is like a cliff, a picture maybe the Grand Canyon or something like that. We may not be able to scale it, but we can stand at the foot of it, touch it, praise its beauty. So it is with the mystery of the Trinity. And we, we may be standing at the foot of, of this, these mysterious, awesome cliffs, but we do have some clues. Father, Son, and Spirit are not like three departments in a corporation, you know, each with, with different duties, like sales, marketing, and research, or something like that. Each part of God is involved in, in every action of God. To take just one example, even though creation is involved or, or associated with the Father, all three were involved. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we're told, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It was hovering over the abyss or the deep. The Spirit was in on creation. Jump to John 1, where we're told, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made. Nothing was made that has been made. They all come together. When, when God creates the world, the Son and the Spirit are also intimately involved in creation. When Jesus redeems the world, he saves us from sin. He, he's resurrected by the Father, and we're born again by the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit helps us to grow spiritually, who does he make us look like? Jesus. He matures us to, to the place where we, we look like Jesus. And it's the, the work of the Spirit by, of Jesus by the Father who sustains us. And when we come to faith in, in Christ, we experience the, the triune God coming to us, a loving Father who, who embraces us, a, a Savior Son who died for us, and the Holy Spirit working in us to help us mature and grow in our faith. They, they exist in this, this perfect beauty and wonder and, and, and unity, and it's the only community on the face of the planet, you know, think schools or, or or families, or churches, or marriages. It's the only community that actually works all the time. There's, there's a, a perfect sense of, of giving honor to one another. Jesus gives glory to the Father, and the Father gives glory to Jesus. I mean, think of Jesus' baptism, which we read earlier. Um, the Father says, this is my Son. It, heavens open, and the Father speaks. 
one of the very few times that happens in Scripture. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And we're told that the Spirit in that same moment comes upon Jesus like a dove. Because the Spirit also gives glory to Jesus. Like Jesus says in, in John 15, 26, he says, when the advocate, which was a, a name they used to describe the Holy Spirit, when the, the Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, out uh, from the Father, the Spirit will testify about me. He bears witness to the Son. There's just no trace of, of jealousy or insecurity or hostility or, or selfishness. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more profound than the Trinity. Um, I think of myself as a foodie. And I don't know what it really means to be a foodie. I just know I really like food. <laughs> and I really like to eat. I think it's a more sophisticated definition than that. But I, that's me. Um, I grew up in small town Ontario, a, a town, Elmer, Ontario. If you ever buy Elmer brand tomatoes, our town was known for tomatoes and tobacco. And, uh, but I grew up eating real simple food, Canadian, real simple Canadian rural town food, like meat and potatoes and fried bologna from time to time. Um, yeah, we were poor. Rice was about as exotic as we ever got growing up. Anyone, anyone relate to that experience? Yeah. We, if you had fried bologna, you like fried bologna, well, we've got a support group for you. That'd be the opposite of foodie if you like fried bologna. It's nutritious, but is it edible? No. Um, in, in our home, if... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You gotta dip it in ketchup and it, it makes everything okay. <laughs> ketchup solves a lot of problems in the world. Um, in our family, if we went out for quote, ethnic food, it was uh, a German smorgasbord that we went to, <laughs> which is just more meat and potatoes in some senses, right? Uh, I, I left home and I actually went to England and that wasn't like a high water mark of, of food experience either. I mean, uh, you know, overcooked beef, and uh, boiled potatoes. I mean, what's the excitement around boiled potatoes, people? Mashed are better for sure. They, they did introduce me really to good fish and chips because when I was growing up, Captain Highliner was what we ate in our home. But of course, my life got turned upside down when I met Angel. She's from Sri Lanka. And uh, I'd had curry before, uh, I thought. And, and, and then I had her her mom's curry, and uh, I've told you probably some of the before, but my experience of going to her parents' home for the first time, her mom is amaz an amazing cook, but she got pretty excited because I was coming. Her, her daughter's boyfriend was coming for dinner for the first time, and so she's cooking up this feast, and she, I think, forgot how much spice she was putting in, and apparently, according to my wife, she put in like double that day of spice, and uh, I, I would eat a bite and drink an entire glass of water, eat a bite and drink, and I, I'm a, I'm a, I'll eat anything you put before me, and so I'm eating, but I'm, it was, it was a horrific experience that day. Um, a baptism by fire, and my taste buds are now gone. I can eat anything. So good. Uh, it's interesting, uh, they introduced me to eggplant curry. 
I had never even heard of eggplant curry until I met Sri Lankans that served it. And uh, when you chop it up and make it into a curry, it's not the most appetizing looking dish. In fact, it's all black. And it's like a, a bowl of black kind of mush. And I looked at this thing and thought, that looks inedible. And then I tasted it and I said, that tastes inedible. But I, it's interesting. Fast forward 26, 27 years, an eggplant curry is just about my favorite dish in the world. I love it. I, I, you know, it, this is the greatest surprise in my life. And along the way... <laughs> God has such a sense of humor hooking us up, didn't he? I mean, really. In the meantime, in the years since, uh, good friends, Albert and Janine, have a revered, revered place in our home because they introduced us to Vietnamese food and to, to pho. And, and I, I can't believe this, but that's our family's comfort food. <laughs> we go for pho. Uh, and then a Malaysian food, don't get me started about Malaysian food, just how good that is, and Singaporean and uh, dosa, uh, I love that. And on and on it goes. Sushi, I, I can't believe how esteemed sushi is. We have sushi as our Christmas meal on Christmas Eve because we love sushi so much. And then come full circle, and we're back to meat and potatoes, and I'm realizing that, that the way we had it at home back then isn't the only way you can have these things, that the chefs actually can prepare this stuff so that it's actually amazing. And there's these fusion of flavors that are going on in, in the culinary world right now, and I'm just thinking, wow, what a rich world. I'm so glad I stepped out of my... My, my little home and my, my, my little town and experienced the world of cuisine and this breadth of flavors. You see, growing up, I didn't realize how much broader the, the world of, of food was out there, how much more delightful food could be, food that has mesmerized me and delighted me and, and brought new joys and tastes and experiences. And I wonder sometimes whether we're a little bit like this with God. We're maybe stuck in a small town in an experience just one cook's version of food. And God's wanting to blow the doors off and invite you into an experience of a much bigger, grander God. And you're afraid because you love what you eat. You love, you love uh, you've got God kind of figured out somehow. You, there's a dimension of God that you've latched onto and you're, you're going, he, this is good. This is enough. I, I like this. This is comfortable. And God says, I want to launch you into a, an adventure with me, discovering who I am and how exciting and beyond what you ever imagined or dreamed. And, and I sense this morning that, that God wants to move us from safe with him to dangerous, to experience every dimension of his character and his being. And and for many of us, that'll be discovering that he is indeed a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're invited into that. And in revealing uh, his nature to us in, in different ways, God is, is always seeking that we grow in our walk with him. He's an infinite God. We can never, plot, we can never reach that place where we kind of have him nailed. There's always more. And, 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 and honestly, when one of these dimensions is neglected or, or maybe emphasized too much, we end up with an incomplete or, or skewed understanding of God. It's, and, and quite honestly, folks, it's much more than just missing out on a food or a flavor. For example, what if we uh, only concentrate on God the creator? 
that the revelations of God uh, are experienced by many, many different religions. Many people uh, know that there is a God who made things, made the world. But if, if we focus solely on God, the creator, it can lead to downplaying this unique revelation that we have in Jesus Christ and his saving work on the cross and his desire to come and save and redeem us and move in our world in those ways. Seen this happen in churches where they're very creation-oriented, but they've missed out on Jesus. That's not really our problem at this church. We believe Jesus is at the center and we want to continue to make him at the center. But on the other side of it, if we neglect God as the creator, we can cut ourselves off from the ways we see God at work in the world through nature or, or say, the discoveries ex- for, for science, for example. I love, I love the fact right now that there's a movement of Christians that are, have gone into science, and some of the best scientists in the world are believers. And we're rediscovering this second book. We've got the Bible, the second book, which is nature. And we're meant to do that. What if we only stress God, the Redeemer, whom we know as Jesus? This can lead to nasty dogmatism, you know, where correct doctrine about Jesus is actually more important than a personal relationship with Jesus. It's more important to some that you can actually sign off to a a statement of beliefs uh, than than actually, and and cross the, the, the T's and dot the I's, than actually engage with the living God personally. And this can be seen, for example, in some forms of Christian fundamentalism. Our larger church family, which is called the EMCC, the Evangelical Missionary Church, they have a a three-word description that kind of describes their vision, which just simply is following Jesus together. And I love that because Jesus calls and invites every one of us to follow him. And that's a good description of the church, I think, following Jesus together. But here's the thing. As we learn to follow Jesus, we find that he leads us right into a relationship with his father and and subsequently into a relationship with the spirit. Jesus was the one who said, it's better if I go so that the spirit can come. I'm going to go away and you're going to miss me, sure, but you're not going to miss me. I'll be closer than I ever was. I'm going to send you my spirit. Which leads us to what, if, what happens if we neglect God in us, the Holy Spirit? Well, a preacher can talk about uh, following Jesus as an exciting adventure, you know, till, till he's blue in the face, but without the Spirit of God empowering us, the Christian life will simply be dull and boring. Feel, feel like pushing a, a, a hundred pound boulder up, up a hill. We'll, we'll quickly wear out, we'll, we'll lose hope, we'll quit. Every, every Christian needs to experience the, the power of God's Spirit, His breath moving us, motivating us, living within us. For, for without the Spirit, living the challenges of the Christian life in our whole, own human strength is honestly, it's a prescription for frustration and for failure. Like, like when I, I grew up in a church and I, I became a Christian in a church that didn't emphasize the Holy Spirit at all. The Holy Spirit rarely got any mention in the church I grew up in. And and I remember as a new Christian being frustrated, I, was, I, I wanted to follow God with all my heart. I, I, my conversion experience was real. Then I, I, I loved Jesus and I wanted to follow him and I was frustrated all the time. And I tried and I tried and I tried. And I remember a, a mentor friend of me, my, mine, 
watching my life and saying to me, Derwin, you ever thought that maybe you're trying too hard? You're doing it on your own. You need the Spirit of God to empower you to do this. I mean, Paul said this. He says in Galatians 3, he says, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? This has been a word to me again and again and again in my life because Honestly, I keep trying to do it in my flesh, thinking I can do the Christian life. You, we can't do the Christian life on our own, only by the Spirit of God. Here's the thing, and it's important to remember that, that Christian faith is not so much about believing an idea about God as it is trusting in the person of God. That the crucial idea here is not that we believe in the idea of Trinity, but that we experience God in a threefold way. And, and you know what's good news for our limited minds? Um, you don't need to fully understand the Trinity to, in order to pray to the Trinity or worship the Trinity or, or enter into the life of the Trinity. For example, they tell me that, that deep within the core of the sun, the temperature is something like 27 million degrees. The pressure is 340 billion times what it is here on Earth. And in the, in the sun's core, that insanely hot temperature and, and unthinkable pressure combines to create nuclear reactions. In each reaction, four protons fuse together to create one alpha particle, which is 0.7% less massive than the four protons. The difference in mass is expelled as energy, and after one million years, through a process called convection, this energy from the core of the sun finally reaches the surface, which is expelled as heat and light. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> now, now, that was kind of interesting, but you know what? <laughs> you don't need to know all that in order to get a suntan. You just need to spend some time in the sun. So in this series, we won't spend a long time speculating on the Trinity, but rather asking the question, how can we experience the Trinity in each of these three ways? Let's fast forward to 11 p.m. tonight. It's dark and quiet. The day's ending. You're, you're finished your homework. Uh, you may be ready for work for the next day. You're turning off the TV. You're listening to your children snore. Um, you're eating that last bowl of Fruit Loops. Not a great thing to eat just before bed, I'd like to say. For the past 16 hours, you've lived your life. You, you went to church. You maybe watched a soccer game. You ate lunch. You folded laundry. What difference has the doctrine of the Trinity made in your life? Let me just suggest five profound and practical ways the triune God can change your life. First, it'll change the way you love others. It'll change the way you love your spouse, the way you love your friends the way you love our neighbors, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to look at that in week three of our series. Secondly, it'll change the way you view God. As we already said, the Trinity deepens the sense of, of depth and, and mystery of God's nature. There is, is beauty and, and wonder unimaginable in the depths of God. God is not, contrary to many people's idea of him, God is not boring and he is not bored. God is bursting with life and, and love and activity. God is the most holy, loving, living, creative, and fascinating being in the entire universe. We can have this kind of idea of this lonely, 
solitary figure that's at the center of things, running things, who's in charge. But God is, God's far more like a party. A party and, and, and life and love that's been going on for, for all eternity. And I, I got to say, I think God, the idea of God, ought to boggle our minds. And it does. The, the wonder of God's nature caused the Apostle Paul to cry out, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. It'll change the way we worship. Um, We often put all kinds of pressure on ourselves, on, on others, and on others for our worship services. We have to get it right. We have to have some kind of experience. We have to, to get fed. We have to stimulate our minds. Uh, we have to offer something to God. We have to do our thing and, and watch the, the pastor and the music leaders do their thing. There's kind of all this pressure that's on us. But did you know that there was already worship going on when you showed up here this morning? It's not because some of you were late. Worship is the gift of of participating in Jesus the Son's offering to the Father in the power of the Spirit. Or or as someone once put it, God is a party of praise and honor and glory. God is a worship service. Jesus offers his life to the Father. The Father gives glory to the Son. The Spirit is all about giving glory to the Father and to the Son. So whenever we gather together in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we're invited into this eternal, ongoing circle of honor and praise and glory. It'll change the way we worship, and it'll change the way we pray. We're going to talk more about this next week, but again, uh, we often approach God in prayer with all kinds of guilt and maybe with all kinds of of pressure again. I, I have to get it right. I have to say the right words. I have to to feel the right things. And if I don't, I I can't approach God. Did you know that the Trinity is already praying for you? According to to Hebrews 7, Jesus the Son is right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, praying on your behalf. And sometimes we don't even have the right words to pray. We're we're hurting so badly that, that all we can do is groan and Romans 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit takes our groanings and and brings them to the Father, and he listens to the deep groanings in our heart. Do you see how powerful that is? Do you see how many resources that are available to us even when we feel completely incompetent? Isn't that encouraging? The disciples, they asked Jesus, teach us to pray. (laughs) We see you praying. We want to pray like you. He says, teach us to pray. And Jesus tells them to start by saying, our Father. And he goes on to say, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It's like, it's like Jesus is saying, I am your all-access card to the Trinity. You know, show this. Name drop. You're allowed. In prayer, we're called a name drop. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. It's, he says, feel free to do that. And how do we do it? How do we pray? We pray by the power of the Spirit. Paul says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Let me suggest that when we learn to to pray to the Father and in the name of the Son 
and in the power of the Holy Spirit, God shows up. There's power in the kind of praying that, that acknowledges the Trinity, that involves the Trinity. Finally, it will change the way you receive love because God is, is triune. Followers of Jesus believe and live their lives in the love of God. We're told in 1 John that God is love. The Trinity tells us that God was and is love from all eternity because God is a community of love. And then that love spills over into the world and spills over into our hearts. For sure, God's love is, is a holy love and, and a, a pure love, but the triune God has opened up a way for you to know him and receive that love. So know this. At the end of this day, you may, may think of yourself as, as broken or insignificant, yet you are, you are deeply loved. You may feel like you're at the end of, of your rope. You may feel small or dirty or ashamed. You may feel lost and empty, but, but you are loved by a, a, three cord, uh, a threefold cord of love. Jesus has, has left the glory of heaven to come to earth, living, dying, and rising again for your sake. The Father has said, I will offer my Son to save this, this fallen and wayward people. And the Spirit pours out his love into our hearts. People, God is a party of love. And he invites you and he invites me to join the party. To come on in. We're invited. Jesus, the Son, has opened the door. And the Father stands ready to embrace you. And the Spirit is there ready to guide you. Um, just before we pray and, and, uh, and sing, Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy Puts, uh, puts everything I've tried to express to together today in a memorable way. I, I, I should have put it on the screen. I didn't, but just listen. He says, the advantage of believing in the reality of the Trinity is not that we get an A for God, from God for giving the right answer. Remember, to believe something is to act as if it is so. To believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is to behave accordingly when trying to figure out how many dollars or apples are in the house. The advantage of believing is not that we can pass tests in math, it is that we can deal much more successfully with reality. Just try dealing with it as if two plus two equaled six. Hence the, the advantage of believing in the Trinity is that we then live as if the Trinity is real, as if the, the cosmos environing us is actually beyond all else, a self-sufficing community of unspeakable, magnificent, personal beings of boundless love, knowledge, and power. And thus believing our lives naturally integrate themselves through our actions into the reality of such a universe. Just as with, just as with 2 plus 2 equals 4, in faith we rest ourselves upon the reality of the Trinity in action, and it graciously meets us, for it is there, and our lives are then enmeshed in the true world of God. May that be so for us. Why don't you close your eyes and let's just pray for a moment. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are beyond our wildest dreams and imaginings. And we come here this morning as, as we have contemplated your nature, God, and we go, we don't have words to understand or put a framework around who you are. 
Thank you, though, that you have revealed yourself, God, and we're not left alone in this. Father, uh, you have sent your Son to make plain what the invisible God is like in Jesus. And Jesus, you sent your Spirit in order to make yourself far more real to us than we could ever imagine. Lord, where we've been content to live in a small, narrow town or experience, where we have a boxed-in spirituality that is far too insufficient for what you have dreamed for us, I pray in, in these weeks, in these days, this morning, you would break open our boxes, enable us to encounter and experiencing, experiencing you in a much greater way than we have done before. Lord, as you gave me a taste for eggplant, uh, which I never would have believed possible, may you give us a taste for the, the greatness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Lead us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.